So as you walk in this morning, one of the things that you read on the walls out there is the purpose of New City Church is to inspire you to trust in and live like Jesus. And the last part of that, living like Jesus, is really the focus of what we're talking about. Last week, as Charlie kicked us off, and over the next several weeks, what does it mean to live like Jesus? You see, friends, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus telling us what life with Him and the Father looks like. And last week, Charlie talked to us about anger and talked about our our words. And I just want to remind you that in the kingdom of God, there's nothing that's insignificant. Amen? Jesus cares about every detail of your life. And there's no part of your life that He's not Lord over. There's an old dead guy named Abraham Kuyper, and he says that there's no square inch in all of creation over which the Lord does not cry, Mine. Mine. And that includes every single part of your life. Your words matter. Your actions matter. Your relationships matter. Your worship matters. Everything matters. And because of that, your marriage matters as well. And the way you live in your marriage relationship matters. And that's where we're going to be focusing our time today. I want to tell you up front that as I was preparing to preach, I drew heavily from two sources outside of, of God's Word in, in my own personal study. Um, one, a, a sermon I heard from uh, Jeff Vanderstelt at Doxa Church in Tacoma, the Tacoma, Seattle area of Washington, and also Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. So if you haven't interacted with that book yet, The Meaning of Marriage, I highly, highly encourage you to make that your next read for you and your spouse, or even if you're preparing for marriage or desire to be married someday, I encourage you to pick up a copy of that book. And also, give a listen to that message from Doxa Church this week, and it'll give you a little bit more robust picture since we are short on time as far as dealing with everything today. But all that being said, if you have your Bible with you, open up with me to the book of Matthew chapter 5. Book of Matthew chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 27 through 32 today. And I'm going to spend the majority of my time in verses 27 through 30, just so you know. So this is God's word to us this morning, straight from Jesus in, in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. That, that's a commandment. All right, you've heard that, Jesus is saying. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better for you that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. This is serious, isn't it? This is is hard. We can say that this is hard. This is serious business here. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. If you're like me and you're reading this, you're saying, Jesus, I'm in big trouble. I'm in big trouble if this is what life in your kingdom looks like. And I'm just, again, I'm going to tell you the truth. Yes, we're all in trouble. We're all in trouble. But listen, anytime you're living life without Jesus, you're in trouble. Anytime you're living life without Jesus, you're in trouble. And this message, these words that Jesus gives us shows us what life in His kingdom can look like. 
And I want to tell you that freedom and victory and restoration and reconciliation is possible for you. First, in your most, importantly, earthly, most important earthly relationships, but more significantly, in your most important heavenly relationship. Victory and restoration and reconciliation is possible, and that's what Jesus is here to tell us today. So let's pray, and we'll continue to move through God's Word. Jesus, we say thank you for hard words. We're, we're thankful that you just don't gloss over difficult things because our, our life is filled with difficult things. And Lord, we pray that when we read these words that our first response wouldn't be to put up a wall or to put up a barrier to say, not so, Lord, but to say, God, what do you have for me today? Lord, we pray that these words would not only cause us to be wounded but would heal us ultimately. That's our true hope. It's your name we pray. Amen. Friends, my purpose in preaching to you this morning is to show you that marriage shows and tells a bigger story about who God is and what life with Him looks like. Marriage shows and tells a bigger story about who God is and what life with Him looks like. This is important because the world will tell you that your marriage, like everything else, about your per- is about your personal happiness. The world wants to tell you that your marriage, who you decide to marry, it's about who's going to make you the most happy. Who's going to make you feel the best? But God tells us something different in His Word. God tells us that our marriage is about Him, and it's about Him making us holy. Now, happiness, as we'll talk about in a little bit, is a byproduct. It should be a byproduct of our marriage, but that's not the ultimate purpose. God's ultimate purpose is that our marriage would make us holy, and it would be a reflection of His relationship with us, and we'll talk more about that. You see, the world will tell you that you have the freedom to treat your marriage like you treat any other relationship. And we have a a dichotomy there, a difference in the way we talk about our relationships. We can choose to think about our relationships in terms of a consumer, a consumer relationship, much like the relationship you have with your cell phone company or your cable provider. (laughs) Or we can choose to treat our marriage like a covenant relationship. A covenant relationship is the one that God shares with us. For those of you who are parents, a covenant relationship is the one that you share with your children. All right, just to give you a little bit of perspective, we'll we'll talk more about that. Today, friends, we're going to talk about keeping that covenant. And we're going to do three things, hopefully, today. We'll see what Jesus is saying. Secondly, we'll see, we'll ask, what does Jesus mean? What does Jesus mean? And finally, what do we do about it? We're going to see what Jesus is saying what he means, and then what we're going to do about it. And a couple questions I want you to consider as we move through the message this morning. Number one, have I treated my marriage like a consumer good? And for those of you who aren't married yet, I want you to ask the question in this way. Do I think about marriage as a consumer good? Am I preparing for marriage like I would any good consumer? And when I'm seeking out a potential spouse, am I seeking them out in a way like I would a good health club? Now, this one, it provides the most for my needs, and man, it has all these options and features, and I think I'll be more comfortable there. <laughs> Are you treating your marriage or your preparation for marriage like a consumer good? Secondly, and really this is the heart of the issue, what are you making an idol out of? Maybe in your marriage you're making an idol out of some issue. There's some disagreement that you're having with your spouse that you're blowing up, you're puffing up, and it's becoming the defining issue in your marriage rather than making your spouse more holy. You're preparing your, that person that you're living life with to meet Jesus someday. Francis Chan said that should be the purpose of your marriage, is to pre- prepare your spouse to meet Jesus. 
Some of you are saying, man, she about met Jesus yesterday, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm doing everything I can to not make that appointment soon, okay? But what are you making an idol out of in your marriage? Finally, what am I, and this is hard, what am I willing to do to have the life and marriage God intended? Hopefully your answer is whatever it takes, right? Whatever it takes. What am I willing to do to have the life and marriage God intended? Well, let's go ahead and dive right in. Look in verse 27 there of Matthew chapter 5 again. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Just so we're clear on our terms here of what adultery is, I don't want to assume that we have a clear picture. Adultery is any sexual activity with anyone who isn't your spouse. Adultery is any sexual activity with anyone who isn't your spouse. One thing I appreciate about Pastor Matt is when you serve at New City Church, one of the first things he does is he asks you to pull your cell phone out, and he says, pull up a picture of your spouse. And so you do, okay, and he goes, now, look at that picture. And we go, okay, and we're all sitting around in a meeting looking. He goes, this is the only person you're allowed to see naked. And we all go, oh, okay. He goes, listen, we don't want to mess with that junk around here. So this is, this is it for you. And adultery, friends, is any sexual activity with anyone who isn't your spouse. And the reason adultery is so bad is because of what our marriage is supposed to be a picture of. Friends, our lives are meant to express the truth about what God is like and what He has done. We have to live like the things we say we believe are true. Amen? So if you're here this morning, and, and maybe this isn't you, maybe you're here today because your friend drug you here, or you just to get them off your back, you said, yes, I'll finally come with you today, so you leave me alone. But if you're here today, and you, you've already said, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, you should live your life in a way that's consistent with the, way that, with the things that you say you believe. Amen? Our actions and our beliefs have to match up. If not, we make God out to be a liar, don't we? If you say that you believe certain things and that you're living your life and committed to live your life a certain way, intellectually, you say, I agree with these ideas, they run my life or help me make decisions, but then in your action you're choosing to live differently than that, then one, one of two things is possible. Either you're lying or God is lying, right? And don't we have a problem in our culture today with people that we think have said that they're committed to live a certain way, and then they choose and we see by their actions they're actually not living that way? Isn't that one of the big penultimate problems of our time? Heavens, yes, it is. Look at what's happening in the church in the eyes of the world right now. Every week, it seems, as a follower of Jesus, as someone who is living life in vocational ministry, I hear about somebody else who was supposedly leading other followers of Jesus that's fallen into sin sexually or perniciously in some way. And when we do that, the eyes of the world look and say, you see, those Christians aren't better than anybody else. And in one way, we're not. But if, they, if, everyone, if all these people say they follow Jesus and they're living like this, then is that Jesus they follow really the way, the truth, and the life? Isn't that the most next logical step? God forbid it, church. And that's why adultery is such a big deal. You see, when you commit adultery, you're calling God a liar and you turn marriage from being a covenant good into a consumer good. And there's a reason why throughout all of Scripture we read of God and Christ's actions towards the church of that of a bridegroom and a bride. 
Jesus repeatedly talks about himself that as the bridegroom, as the groom, and us as the body of Christ's church, as the bride that he's going and giving his life for, and he's going away to prepare a place for us as a bridegroom would for their bride they're going to marry, and preparing a house for us to go and live in with him someday. And when we live life in a consumer relationship in our marriage, we're saying that Jesus isn't a good bridegroom. And that we're an adulterous bride that's going to continue to run off after whatever our heart fancies. May it never be, church. So to, to define our terms a little further, let's talk quickly about the difference between a covenant relationship and a consumer relationship. Again, in a consumer relationship, you relate to the other person as that of a vendor. And if you don't keep adjusting to me in that relationship, then I'm out. Any of you gone round and round with your cable company or your cell phone company? Like last week, I got another ad from Spectrum, and we're with AT&T right now, all right? And AT&T has been really, you know, I'm not too happy right now with the internet because I do a lot of video conference calling, and it's been really buggy. It's frustrating, and so I see this nice ad come from Spectrum, and they're like, hey, our internet's better, and we'll give you a better deal. And I'm like, what's up, Spectrum? I'm liking what I'm seeing. All right. Why don't you, I'm gonna, hey, hey, I'm going to call you on the phone. I'm going to talk to somebody about that. Why don't you tell me what I want to hear? And then I'm going to call at and be like, you're out, buddy. And I'm going to wait for them to be like, wait, no, we love you so much. We just want you back. Stay with me. Stay with us. And those are consumer relationships. If you, listen, if you ever want a better deal from your cell phone company or your cable provider, just call me like, I'm leaving you. I'm leaving you for something better. They're like, wait, no, no. We've always loved you. You've been with us since 2004, right? Please don't leave. We laugh because it's true. But it's not so funny when we treat our marriages like that. When our marriages are meant to be covenant relationships. You see, in a covenant, I'll adjust to you because I've made a promise and the relationship that I have with you is more important than my needs. That's a covenant relationship. And those of you that have children know that, right? Let's be honest. Our children will never be able to repay us for everything that we've done for them, right? Never, ever, ever. They'll ne- they can never repay. Ever. They can't give you the time back. They can't give you the energy back. They can't give you your non-gray hair back or your hair back. They can't give you, they can't give you any of that back. And we treat them, we live life with them in a covenant relationship. And we sacrifice as parents. You know that you sacrifice your wants and desires for the sake of this child that you're raising, don't you? Because you think, if you're, some, let's be honest, you think sometimes like, man, there's so much more I could be doing. There's other things that I could be spending my money on, my resources on, like my time. I'd sometimes, as some of you know, our family, we have, well, we have four kids, uh, and we're about to have five, right? And so whenever my kids start treating my wife poorly, I pull them aside and I say, your mother is giving her life to you. Do you think that she can't do other things? Do you think that she can't be giving the best of herself to something else? But she is choosing to live her life with you every single day. And to give to you sacrificially. And to stay up late and prepare to teach you every single day. Do you see that? You know, not, not everybody does that. And they're like, oh, we, we know. I'm like, then you need to love her and respect her as such. Listen, when you have children, you understand the nature of this covenant relationship. They can, never, they can never repay us. And so when you live life in a covenant with someone, you choose to say, my desires and my wants aren't the most important thing in this relationship. The relationship and the promise I made is. 
Listen, when you do something with your body or with your resources that you're not doing with your life, you're in a consumer relationship. Do you see that? If you've said, hey, I'm going to give some of myself to something, I don't give my life to this, though. My life's not going to reflect that. That's a consumer relationship. And God's desire is that we would be wholehearted people, and we can't say we believe one thing and do another. And what we do with our lives matter because it paints a, bitter, a bigger picture. And so, friends, listen. Don't buy the lie that, you can do with your bo- that what you do with your body doesn't affect you physically or emotionally. Don't buy the lie that what you do with your body doesn't affect you physically or emotionally. And if you need an example of that, let me ask you, have you ever had a toothache? Have you ever had a toothache? Oh, man, when you have a toothache, doesn't that change everything about you? That's just one little part of your body, and it hurts, all right? And then all of a sudden, it's, it's, it changes everything. It changes how you behave. It changes absolutely everything. If someone, I, man, I have a lot of injuries, okay? It's just part of my life. Someone asked me earlier, like, how's that rib doing? I separated a rib several months ago, and it happened so long ago, and I've had so many other injuries, I almost forgot, right, that that <laughs> happened. I was like, oh, yeah, I did, I did separate my rib. That was terrible when that happened. Because since then, I've, you know, I wrecked on my bike a few times. I jacked my, I got poison ivy. I mean, just like, it's just crazy, right? I'm just constantly hurt in some way. But when you get hurt in some way, it changes everything about you. So you can't pretend that when you do something with your body, it's not going to affect you in another way. And that's what you would want to believe, or some people that commit adultery would want to believe. They would want to believe that you can do something with one part of your life that's not going to affect every other part of your life. I have a friend of of mine, and they were telling me that in their neighborhood, they've gotten to be friends with some of their neighbors, and one of their neighbors approached them and said, hey, my spouse and I, we're in an open marriage, and we just wanted to talk to you about that. And they, and these, these people, uh, my, my friend, they're a follower of Jesus, they said, I, Matt, what do we do about this? And I said, I, I just, I, if you ask me what you should do, I'm always going to ask you this question. Well, what, what do you think you should do, right? Because I want to see where you are. And they said, well, we don't think that that's God's best for us. Well, that's right. And I said, Is this, are these people that you're wanting to bring into the kingdom, like, do you think that that's possible? And they said, well, absolutely it's possible. I said, well, then I would ask them why. Like, what are they trying to accomplish by making these decisions that they think is good about that? And I said, chances are, most of the time, people don't know why they do the things that they do. They don't know why they make the decisions that they do. I said, ultimately, what they're doing is they're trying to fill some kind of God-shaped hole or desire that they have that God gave them with something that will never satisfy them. I said, so the more you ask them why, why do you think this is good, the, the more you'll get to the root of the issue, and that's, that's where you'll reveal the wound that only Jesus can heal. And so I just want to tell you, friend, for you in your life, whatever it is that you're doing to try and fill that, that sense of void that you have, that's probably the indication of a wound that only Jesus can heal. And when Jesus, and we're going to dig into this in a second when we talk about lust, But I just want to tell you that Jesus is talking about lust and he's relating it to marriage and sexual things. But sex really isn't about that. Usually when people are sinning sexually, it's indication of a deeper wound that they have. And so for you, what is that deeper wound that you're trying to heal with things that will never satisfy you? I don't know. I don't know. But before I get there, I better get back into this. Again, friends, God's design for our marriage is for our holiness, not our happiness. 
And that's why happiness can't be the foundation of your marriage because it's so incredibly fleeting, right? We were helping our friends move, and uh, they've been married about the same amount of time as we have. And there was this picture of them from their engagement. Anyone have engagement pictures? And it was big, and it used to hang above their fireplace. And I picked it up, and I was moving it out. And Stephanie looked at her husband's name as Matt also. She goes, oh, look, honey. It's, when we were, it's a picture of when we were in love, right? <laughs> and all of us laugh, right? Because we know that there are times in your relationship with your spouse when you look at the other person in your mind thinking, I love you, but I don't like you right now. And if happiness was the foundation of your marriage, what would happen to our marriages? Because is there happiness and joy? Yes. Yes, and it's deeper than we ever thought possible. We can be honest about that. When we said I do and we look back 10 years later, 15 years later, we go, Man, I said I loved you then, but I had no idea what that would mean like I do now. And it's so much deeper than I ever thought possible. But with that day when you said I do, you had no idea of the challenges that were ahead, did you? You had no idea of of the, the testing of that covenant that would come. So marriage can't just be about your happiness. And friends, that's why having realistic expectations in your marriage is so important. And that's why pornography, visual and emotional in nature, is so devastating because it sells a false expectation of what a spouse is and should be. And and those of you who are married, that's not just a word for you, but that's a word for those of you who are single as well as you prepare for marriage. You need to have a realistic expectation of who your spouse is. Don't buy buy the, the Nicholas Sparks junk, right? Ain't a man out there like that, okay? And sometimes, when, and sometimes in my marriage with Jessica, I, I just have to look. I say, babe, I'm sorry. It's like, I just don't see that. She's like, didn't you see all this stuff laying around the house? And I go, no, I, I didn't. I just, I, I'm sorry, right? That's just not who I am. It's not who I am, right? And she, I had to build shelves yesterday because I'm a, a man, and your wife says I want shelves in my closet. You build your shelves in your closet, right? <laughs> And so I did that, and they came out good. I was, I was proud of them. And she fin- I finished, and she goes, I didn't know you were capable of this. <laughs> she goes, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep that in mind. I'm like, well, what are you saying? Like, what do you mean? I said, of course, I'm puffing myself. I'm like, well, you asked me to do something. I'm going I'm to do it, right? I mean, what do you need? I'll, I'll do that for you. She's like, I didn't know you were capable of that. Right? But I know, it's okay. That's all right. She, I got a better deal than she does. I, I promise you that. But listen. You have to have a realistic expectation of who your spouse is and what they're there for you. And they're there to make you holy, ultimately. Amen. And they're to show you more of what Jesus is like. <laughs> that's, part of, that's part of the wonder of the gospel, friends, is that God loves us intimate, knows us intimately and loves us anyway. And that's what marriage is. Your spouse, earthly, knows you more than anybody else will. And they still choose to love you. They choose every day to love you. And that's what makes the gospel beautiful. There's someone who knows you intimately and, and loves you anyway. And your marriage should be a reflection of that. So that's what Jesus is saying. But what does Jesus mean? So in case you think you're in the clear and you're like, hey, nope, never committed adultery. Check, right? I can kind of bow out for the rest of the day. Not so quick. Look what Jesus says. You've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. And everyone's going, yep, never done it. I'm good, right? But I tell you, Or as Charlie reminded us last week, and I'm saying to you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, that's that's where things get difficult. Let's define lust really quickly. 
Lust is looking with the desire to desire what is not yours to desire. Lust is looking with a desire to desire what is not yours to desire. What does that mean? Well, when we lust, friends, we leap from appreciation of something to ownership of that thing or that person. You leap from appreciation to ownership. Jeff Vanderstelt in his message said, lust is moving from that's nice to that would be nice. It's moving from appreciation to ownership. It's moving from enjoyment or appreciation of something that God made beautiful and glorious to something that you're trying to keep for yourself and yourself alone. That's what lust is. And when we lust, we seek to enslave a thing or a person that we're lusting after for our own gratification. That's what lust is. And and Jesus, in his words, he's drawing this back to the Ten Commandments when he tells us not to covet. Do you see that? We're not to covet our, our, our neighbor's anything. His wife, his house, his property, his, the thing that he drives, it doesn't matter. We're not to lust after anything at all. And when we begin to give our eye and our heart away, the reason why it's so, so powerful is when we begin to give our eye and our heart away, our body is soon to follow after that. Do you see that? And, and some of you, if it, again, it, sex isn't always just about sex. Right? Think about when you see the new truck that comes out or the new fishing pole or the new whatever it is. You, start, you get the magazine, you get the mailer in, right? And you open it up and you're like, wow, check that out. Babe, look at this, right? Isn't this awesome? Look at, you know how much better this is than this other one that we already have that served us well for 20 years, right? Like, look at this. Look at, look at the features, man. This one doesn't have the dings and the dents like our other one has. Look at the leather, right? Bluetooth. Whoa, like this is so much better. So you start to give your eyes and your heart to something. Then pretty soon, what do you do? You start scheming for a way to buy it, right? Well, you know, if we just cut a little bit of money after that col- out of that college fund, we could afford this. Well, you know, if we just don't, we don't tithe for a few months, man, we could, this could come to us. And pretty soon, the things that your eyes and your heart tell you, your body and your actions start to follow quickly after that. That's what lust is. It's when you start to desire to desire the things that God hasn't given you to desire yet. And friends, we'll talk about this more in a minute, but the inverse is also true. You can't give your body to somebody and not expect your heart and your soul to follow. You can't give part of yourself away and not expect that to impact the rest of your life. You see, lust moves from desire, which is God-given, to discontent with our lack of something. And when we lust, we seek to satisfy a good desire with something or someone God has not yet given us or won't allow us to have. Wasn't that the first sin in the garden? Don't you remember Eve? What did she say? The snake talked to her first. If the snake tells you anything, just walk away. Okay? But the serpent starts talking to her, and he starts putting doubt in her mind. Did God really say this? Did he really say? And he tells her half-truth. And what does the word say in Genesis? It says that she saw with her eyes that it was pleasing and good to eat. And so she took and she ate. She heard that voice and went, oh, well, this looks good to me, and I want it, even though God had said I shouldn't have it. But it looks good, and I want it, so it can't be that bad. Again, that's really a picture of, of lust. And in case we think it's only about that, I want to remind you that biblically, biblically, only twice in the Old Testament is lust used in a, in a sexual way. Typically, it's about God's people wanting life under the leadership of other gods. 
It's them longing to be under another God than the one that they have. Living life under the gods of this culture is something that we deal with every day, isn't it? Friends, one of the great lies of our time is that you're not enough and you don't have enough, but you can get it. When you're on the Instagram and you're on the Twitter and you're on the Facebook, you're constantly bombarded with people that look like they're living a better life than you, right? And you go, man, what, is, what, what if I could have that? What if, and that's available to me. What do I have to do to get that, that life that I think that I want? You know, if I had this, I think I would be happy. If only I could lose another five pounds. If I had wider teeth. If I had a second vacation property, if I had a bigger vehicle, if I had a vacation like that, that's, that's what I need. And oh, it's look, they're showing me that it's available to me. I can have it. I can, I can have it. And we begin to give our life away to that. The Bible has a word for that. It's called idolatry. <laughs> it's idolatry. And when we look to something or someone other than Jesus to give us affirmation and security that only God can give, then we've made an idol out of something or someone. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Quickly we do whatever it takes. Look in verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Listen, this is hyperbole. In fact, the early church, there were some people that were thinking this was serious. And so a couple of the early church characters, one even castrated himself because he thought that this would do away with the sinful desires that he would have. Not so, right? And so they had to say, listen, don't be cutting parts of your body off if you think it's going to help you. But Jesus is using very desperate language here to tell us that desperate times and circumstances call for desperate measures because the stakes are so high. So what Jesus is saying is that you need to be drastic in how you deal with your sin. You need to be drastic in how you deal with your temptation. You need to do whatever you have to do to get it out of your life. And if we're honest, friends, most of us like to keep pet sins around, don't we? We like, to keep, we like to keep that sin around and go, I don't, you know, it's, I, it just once in a while, right? Just makes me, makes me feel good. I, you know, it doesn't, it's not, doesn't run my life, but I like, to, I like to have it around a little bit. And um, if I just have it every once in a while, it really can't affect me that terribly. By using, by using this, this language like this, Jesus is telling us how serious this is. So I want to ask you, what's the cause of your lust? I love what Jesus says in Matthew 6.22. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? No one can be a slave of two masters since he will either hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You see, our eyes reveal what's already inside of us. So it's not that the things on the outside are what changes. It's our eyes are drawn to the things on the inside that tell us that we want. Do you see that? And so if you're prone to looking after something or looking after someone, it's because there's something else that's already inside of you that you're trying to fill. There's a desire there that your eyes are gravitating towards and for. And so it's not this thing or this person out here. It's what's in here that's killing you. 
Because whatever is in here is going to transform the way that you behave out there. And so if you're recognizing there's something welling up within you that's causing you to seek after something or someone that God hasn't given you to have, it's not this outside thing. It's what's in here that's going to devastate you. Now, you will have to remove that outside thing, whatever that is, for a time. But unless this inside thing changes, you'll just move on from that to something else. Six months later, another person will come along or another, they'll, they'll bring a new truck will roll off the line and you'll be right back in the same place you were before if the inside doesn't change. Do you see that? That's why Jesus is saying, listen, you need to change your behavior. You need to do something drastic to change the, what's on the inside of you. Friends, the eye reveals what's already in. And you know, for me, when I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with the temptation or the lusting after things that God hasn't given me to have, you know what it's ultimately a reflection of? The emptiness that I most often struggle with. And those of you who have been through our discipleship process at New City, you know that oftentimes we walk you through a discipleship square, right? Or discipleship circle. And we ask you a series of questions. And that's to get to that deeper issue. And I've walked through enough of those for me personally to know that for me, the things that I'm usually trying to, to find are things like accomplishment, things like approval. I'm dealing with things like insecurity and pride. So when I'm longing after things or other, uh, after stuff that God hasn't given me, when I'm feeling like disappointed or desperate in some way, it's because there's some, th- some kind of approval there, some kind of pride there that's welling up inside of me. And that's the ultimate issue. It's not this other thing. It's what's in here. And so when those times come for me, and listen, this is why you have to preach the gospel to yourself every single day. Every single day. You have to remind yourself of the goodness of God, and you have to remind yourself of the things that we say, saying, that we are who he says that we are. That in Christ we're holy, righteous, pure, chosen, set apart for holy use. And you have to tell yourself that every single day. Because if not, you'll believe the lies of the world that will tell you you need something else or someone else to be who you want to be. And you'll let that approval that you get or that sense of security that, or satisfaction you get from something or someone else drive you to make decisions that aren't for you to make. And you'll end up far more desperate and far away than God would ever want you to be. So you need to remember that you are who God says you are. Listen, the key to all of this is to replace your idols with King Jesus because the truth is we're all adulterers, aren't we, in one way or the other. We've all run after other gods. And whatever that idol is, you need to replace it with King Jesus. I used to think that the cure was to, to crucify your idols or to put them to death. But I found that idols have an, incredibly, an incredible capacity for resurrection. They just keep popping up again. Until I realized that, you know what, I need to replace my desire for that thing with a desire for King Jesus instead. And whatever that desire that I have that's drawing me to this other thing is, it's because that's a desire that God has rightfully given me that can only be fulfilled in in total in relationship with Him. And so it's not that this desire is bad, it's how I'm expressing that that's misguided and misdirected. So you need to replace your idols with King Jesus quickly. So what do we do with all of this? Well, you need to prepare now for marriage, those of you who aren't married. You need to prepare and pray for your, speech, your future spouse realistically, right? Realistically, men and women both, realistically. 
need to hold yourself in high regard. Be very discerning about who and what you give your heart to. You need to be the kind of person others want to be with and around. You need to develop good habits now with patience, kindness, gentleness, forgiveness, and respect. You need to honor your marriage. You need to work on it, those of you who are married. You need to give it priority. You need to love Jesus more than your spouse. And you need to encourage your spouse to love Jesus more than they love you. You need to to lift that up and promote that. You need to view your marriage as sacrificial ministry. As a covenant good and not a consumer good. You need to fight for your marriage. And listen, guys, you need to not be a jerk. You know how many of my marriage conflicts that we solve just because I do some self-talk and be like, I'm just kind of a jerk right now. Man, what would how would how would this argument change if I just decided to not be a jerk? Oh, it probably changed quite a bit. Then I just start like I even though I am a jerk, how would I act right now if I wasn't a jerk? I'm gonna try that, right? I'm just gonna try it. Let's try acting not acting like a jerk right now. It'll change. It, it changes. Listen, the re- and you know why it's so in my mind is because it happened like two days ago, right? Jessica and I were having this this conversation right? <laughs> that had been an ongoing conversation for a few days and, and she, was, she was asking me questions right and I said babe I said I don't agree but I just don't want to fight with you about that it's okay I don't have to be right like and and since I'm still working on it so new to her she didn't know what to do she was like well what do you what do you mean and I was like babe I'm just not going to argue with you right I was like listen I like to argue I like to be right but I just don't want to argue I'm okay. It's okay if we think differently about that. I'm, I'm willing. It's okay to let it lie. She was just like, and that took some backing up for me to go, no, it's really, it's okay. Like, we can just, it's all right. It's all right. I got work to do, friends. We all got work to do. Very quickly, listen, we didn't deal a lot with divorce. So what happens if you break covenant? What happens if you break covenant? First, I just want to tell you quickly, seek reconciliation with your spouse. I have a friend who, wife wasn't, it was a mess. It was a, let's just say it was a giant mess. And over and over on the phone, I would tell him, friend, you need to fight for your marriage. You need to fight for your marriage. Fight for your marriage. There aren't a lot of things in life worth fighting for, but your marriage is worth fighting for. And when I would pray with him, I would pray in advance and pray that we would look back in a year and celebrate all that God would, had done in his life and in his marriage. And you know what we get to do now? We get to celebrate all that God has done in his life and his marriage. And he was in a desperate place, friends. A desperate place. You need to seek reconciliation with your spouse. You need to seek reconciliation with God. And you need to remember who God is. And that goes for you who have made a difficult decision and you've walked through divorce. Listen, grace is bigger than your divorce. And grace multiplies bigger than breaking the covenant. So if you're here this morning and divorce has been part of your story... God can make beautiful things out of broken things in your life. You need to know that. And it's possible that this new, this, this new covenant that you're in, if you're, if you're remarried, it's, it's very possible that this can be a better expression of the life that God would have for you than what happened before. But listen, that's not God's best. You know what it's like? It's like I was having a conversation with another friend of mine whose, whose wife left them desperately, committed adultery and went away, and he was struggling big time. And he says, I just don't know if I can ever be whole again. And, and this is what I told him. I said, listen, I said, I play Play-Doh with my kids. And the, the, the colors, they never stay in the container, right? They always get mixed up. And I said, and as much as I want to pull them apart and, and put them back in the container they came in, 
It's just not, you can't do it. Because when you take two things and you make them one, they'll never not be one again. I said, but I can take those, even if I separate, I said, we can still make something out of it. We still can. We can still, we can still make something. I said, will it be maybe what we wanted it to be? No. But it can still, it can still work. It can still be good. And listen, this isn't a license for you to sin, and that's what Jesus is talking about when he says, you've heard this, but I'm telling you this. Because the divorce laws in, in, in Judaism in the first century, you could divorce your wife for anything. Anything. She didn't cook the way you wanted to. She passed gas. I'm, she's done. I'm done with her. I want a newer wife, a younger wife. I'm done with her. And Jesus issued this warning as a protection for marriages at this time. All right? He's saying, listen, you need to treat your marriage as something very special. But I want to tell you that God's in the business of making beautiful things out of broken things. And so I just want you to move forward. Move forward. So what are some takeaways quickly today? First, I want you to, just two things quickly. Repent and replace. Repent and replace. All of us have treated our marriage or we've lusted after things in life that will never satisfy. You need to recognize what those things are and repent. Repent. Change your behavior. And then replace your idols with a deep desire for King Jesus. Replace your idols with a deep desire for King Jesus. Recognize that there there are things in your life that you're seeking after that can only be satisfied in relationship with Jesus. But very practically, those of you who are married, I want you to go home and talk with your spouse about where the dangers in your marriage are. Where are those weak places in your marriage? And I want you to plan... Make a plan on how to deal with those in your marriage. Say, listen, we're not, we're not communicating in this area, or this is an area I'm struggling with. Where are you struggling? Okay, we need a plan. We need a plan for how to deal with that. We need a plan for how to deal with that. Friends, listen. Jesus' desire in giving us the words in the Sermon on the Mount is to show us what life in the kingdom can look like. And he wants to tell us that it's possible for you and it's available for you. It's not easy, he says, but it's completely and incredibly worth it. And I'm going to show you the way to live if you follow after me.